The next version of NAFTA now signed by all three countries, but it's far from a done deal. What happens if Congress balks as it might? The story today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown on Capitol Hill. The pushback's bipartisan when it comes to the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal. We'll hear why and whether it could cause the pact to unravel. Also, picture this. You're pulled over at the side of the road and the trooper asks to see your smartphone. How close are we to digital IDs in Texas? Closer than you might think. Plus, the week that was in Lone Star politics and a whole lot more as the Texas Standard gets started right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this TGI Friday. Thanks for spending a bit of your last day of the work week with us on this November 30th. Great to have you with us. I'm David Brown, shaping up to be a pretty great weekend weather-wise for those of us who prefer not to get around in sleighs. At least some of the wet stuff blows through. And then the forecast for the weekend shows warmer than seasonal temperatures for much of the Lone Star State. In the 60s out in West Texas, reaching to the upper 70s and 80s on a line from, well, roughly Dallas to Del Rio. And you might even see the upper 80s down around McAllen, Brownsville. Corpus Christi, mostly clear skies Saturday and Sunday, cooling down just a bit. Keep it here for the latest. Well, I guess it's official. There's a new trade deal linking the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, hence the new name for what used to be called NAFTA. Now it's USMCA, as you may have heard. The United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, though NAFTA 2.0 is what many folks are calling it. Leaders from all three countries, President Trump, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, and soon-to-be former Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto, His replacement is inaugurated tomorrow, by the way. All three formally signed the newly revised pact on the sidelines of the G20 summit underway in Buenos Aires, marking the end of 15 months of renegotiations. But make no mistake, while this may look like a done deal, the battle is far from over because for the U.S. to formally adopt the deal, it'll take more than presidential signatures. It's up to the U.S. Congress to ratify the plan, too, and plenty of reasons to think Mr. Trump may be incorrect in his assessment at the signing ceremony that it'll sail through Capitol Hill. Just ask Megan Casella. She's trade reporter for Politico Pro. Megan, thanks so much for being here on the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. What exactly are the three countries agreeing to here with these signatures? What they're agreeing to is to this new deal that they spent the 15 months negotiating. So large parts of it are the same as the old one, but there are also pretty significant policy changes, um, stricter rules governing the production of automobiles that are sold in North America, tightened standards as to how much of those materials have to be sourced from within North America, how much have to be produced by workers or nearly $16 an hour. Um, there's changes throughout the agreement. And so the, the three leaders signed that, but as you noted, their respective legislatures still have to ratify it. So while Canada and Mexico might run into a few difficulties, the big show is going to be in the United States and seeing whether um, likely next year's Congress is going to be the one tasked with that and whether they'll uh, vote to approve it. Just as a procedural matter, what is it need for formal adoption by the U.S.? 
it needs just a simple majority in both chambers of Congress. Um, but especially in the House of Representatives, which next year will be controlled by Democrats, it could be kind of hard for um, the administration to get to the 218 votes that it needs in support. Yeah, I was just reading on Politico today that there are some Democrats already opposing some of the, what, labor and environmental provisions in the PAC? Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's opposition from both chambers and both sides of the aisle huh. already. So Democrats are pretty unified and what they're calling for is stronger labor and environmental standards. And the Trump administration says, you know, we did this. We kept in touch with Democrats throughout the entire negotiation process. They knew what we were pushing for and they should be happy. But Democrats are saying, no, you know, you didn't go far enough. And What's in there, the language itself doesn't go far enough, and the language isn't enforceable. And we're worried that Mexico in particular is just going to ignore everything that's in there, and they won't um, actually abide by these new standards. As I understand it, Massachusetts Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren was one of, one of many voices on the left saying that this deal as written won't prevent outsourcing or raise wages, right? Yes. Yeah. She's maybe the most prominent uh, Democrat to come out so early with her opposition and, you know, very staunch opposition saying I'm a no in its current form. Okay, so let's get to those Republicans. What's their beef? Uh, what they're saying is some free trade oriented Republicans are saying this actually runs counter to traditional free trade orthodoxy that Republicans have always espoused and saying this actually limits our trading opportunities rather than promotes them. And, you know, there's there's some other there's some conservatives in the House of Representatives who are also concerned about some protections for LGBT workers in the deal. And they're saying, you know, this is no place to uh, create new social policies in a trade agreement. And so they want to see those removed before they'll consider voting. for the Oh, deal. boy. Wow. Well, um, so and of course, it it's hardly sounds like, especially with Democrats set to take control of the U.S. House uh, at the start of the new year. It's hard to imagine that there's going to be a vote between now and the uh, last day of December. So I suppose I, I have to ask you, what happens if Congress balks here, if they won't sign on to the USMCA as it's written? They will uh, push it into next year, almost certainly. Um, and then they do have a few opportunities to try to leave their mark on it. They're not allowed under uh, procedure to make amendments to this particular deal, but they can. Uh, they will be creating what's called the implementing bill to uh, actually enact it in U.S. law, and they can make some changes there. And so they can say, through this bill, we need you to tighten the labor standards. We need you to uh, maybe adjust these LGBT protections, whatever they want to see. And that could be enough to uh, get enough lawmakers to get at least half of um, each chamber to sign on, maybe sometime next year. But they could postpone it, I mean, in perpetuity forever. Um, in perpetuity. Until changes are seen. You know, that's the most pessimistic view. I guess the average prediction is probably that it gets done sometime next year after a bit of a fight in Congress. Megan Casella is certain to be following this. She's trade reporter for Politico Pro, and she's been speaking with us from Washington, D.C. Megan, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Great to, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. These days, we do a lot of things on our phones. We can buy coffee, check in for a flight, pay the sitter, shop for groceries, start our car, show our insurance card to an officer of the law, even make phone calls. Who'd have thunk it? We could probably dispense with our physical wallets altogether. Ooh, well, not quite. Still have to show a driver's license every now and then, right? Unless, well, what if we could carry our official ID on our smartphone, too? 
Say hello to House Bill 181, introduced by State Representative Terry Canales, the Edinburgh Democrat, joins us now on the Texas Standard. Uh, Representative Canales, welcome. Thank you for having me. Are there any states with digital IDs that you're aware of, or would Texas be the first here? Well, there's about 12 states, including Texas, that have submitted or passed legislation related to digital driver's license. Um, And I believe we've got one state in the union that's actually got uh, a digital driver's license, Mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily reciprocal with federal requirements of ID. And so But the important part of the bill is to stay on par with technology. So what exactly would your bill, House Bill 181, what what does it propose to do? What it does is it creates a pilot. And so we've already passed a study that required DPS to conduct a study to see the feasibility of digital driver's license. Mm -hmm. And DPS came back and concluded, yes, it's extreme. Not only is it possible, it's extremely viable. But this one, what it does is it allows DPS to actually create it produces this digital driver's license and they share it amongst themselves Mm -hmm. so that they actually work the kinks out and uh, go to a working feature that you and I might be able to carry on our phones. I see. So, for instance, let me make sure that I've got this right. DPS uh, officers or certain agents might be able to carry one of these themselves and sort of test it in the field. Is that is that the idea? Exactly. Something like that. Uh, As our smartphones, um, the technology gets better and better. You're able to potentially beam your driver's license to the trooper who has pulled you over. So before he even gets out of his vehicle, uh-huh. he knows who's in the car. He's You've beamed it to his screen. Uh, so when he gets there, he's got that on his digital media. So well. potentially there's a safety issue right there where, I mean, that you that you're dealing with because the trooper, at least in theory, may know exactly who he's dealing with before he actually has to step out of the vehicle. I see what you're saying. Now, what about uh, other things like, you know, you have to show your ID at an airport and there's, I would imagine, some federal standard when it comes to presentation of an ID, right? That's right. And so right now, going back to our original, the original question, there's nobody who's met the federal standards for identification when it comes to presenting it, for instance, to uh, TSA or other federal agencies or agents. Mm -hmm. But that would be the goal. That would ultimately be the goal would be that we create a digital ID that you can use in those instances. And the building itself, when the the pilots created nothing in our, um, our intention is not to do away with the physical driver's license. It's to create a convenient option for license holders to have it. I'm thinking a lot of people have uh, been second guessing technology of late, certainly after 2016. Hacking is a fear a lot of folks have. And and I wonder too about uh, some uh, concerns about privacy rights when it comes to those phones that track us everywhere we go. Absolutely. And one of the features that we've talked about with DPS and some of the third party vendors who've actually bid these projects and tried to say we can do it is that there would be a lockout feature on the phone when you hand your phone to the trooper and or law enforcement officer where they could not access, download and or use any of your phone information. Uh, Do we think that might spawn into some other sort of uh, case law? Absolutely. I'm sure somewhere along the line there'll be some issues with it. But in general, the idea is that the, the, the purpose, when you hand the trooper your phone, which would have your driver's license, that's the only thing they're able to access. That's the only reason for handing them the phone, not for, a, not for any sorts of search and seizure. He is State Representative Terry Canales, a Democrat from Edinburgh, and he's introduced a new bill in the House of Representatives that would launch a pilot program for digital IDs, IDs we could, uh, official IDs we could use on our smartphone. He's been speaking with us by smartphone, by the way, uh, from Edinburgh. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Have a Merry Christmas. And same to you.
He's back in the studio, our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. The G20 summit in Argentina and approval of the reworked trade agreement for North America, one of the topics folks are exploring on social media today. Uh President Trump is bragging about the agreement on Twitter, saying, quote, the terrible NAFTA will soon be gone. The USMCA will be fantastic for all. Meanwhile, in Austin, Kelly Scaletta says there is less difference between the two agreements than there is in a standard Windows update. That's one way of putting it. Mm. Meanwhile, Kaylee has a different takeaway from the meeting. She says, watching all the world leaders at the G20 summit as finals are coming up is motivating me even more. Seeing all the world leaders greeting each other is so exciting. And video of one of those uh, greetings going viral, David, Russian Mm. President Vladimir Putin and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman sharing a vigorous high-fiving handshake, slapping hands, and they're uh, laughing and smiling broadly at each other. Also in Austin, Link Dunn says, It looked like two bros sharing a secret joke, laughing conspiratorially and practically hanging on each other. Yeah, very interesting uh, reactions to that video indeed. I'll be back with more reactions from social media later in the program. What's making news in your part of Texas? We would love to hear from you. You know what to do, right? You reach out to us on Twitter at Texas Standard, or you join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar is looking for you, and he'll be back in 35 on The Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen, including a healthy diet and exercise, can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. Business and your money on The Standard. I'm David Brown. At first, it appeared that despite GOP efforts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, more people in Texas were signing up to buy health insurance this year from the individual marketplace created by the ACA. What a difference a month has made, as KUT Austin's Ashley Lopez reports. Compared to this time last year, enrollment in the Obamacare marketplace is down about 7 percent in Texas, according to federal health officials. However, the nationwide drop is even bigger, about 13 percent. Melissa McChesney with the Center for Public Policy Priorities says this is a result of several Trump administration decisions, including cuts to funding for outreach and assistance for people trying to buy a plan. So, you know, we've seen these deliberate attempts to sort of undermine enrollment. And so it is very concerning. I will say that at the end of last year, we were expecting a bigger drop than we saw. Last year, there was an 8% drop in enrollment in Texas compared to the year before. Even with Trump administration cuts, McChesney says there are important parts of the law still standing. For example, subsidies to help offset the cost of Obamacare plans still make health care more affordable for a lot of people in Texas. The last day to sign up for a plan through healthcare.gov is December 15th. In Austin, I'm Ashley Lopez for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. A Pew Research study released earlier this year says employment in America's newsrooms has declined by nearly a quarter in just under 10 years. We know that much of that decline is happening in the newspaper industry. Pew says employment at newspapers has dropped by 45 percent between 2008 and 2017. But this decline has hit some local papers especially hard, leaving communities with pared-down journalism that once served as a bedrock for local news and information. In one Texas town, however, a group of journalism-minded citizens are hoping to fill that gap. 
Joining us now is Tasneem Raja. She is a former senior editor at NPR News and is currently the executive editor and co-founder of The Tyler Loop. Tasneem, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you so much. What is The Tyler Loop? Tell us about it. Sure. So we're a digital magazine based out of Tyler, Texas. And we started about 1.5 years ago to bring a new kind of journalism to this community. Um, It's a community that became my home a little later in life. I've lived here for about two years. Mm -hmm. And I saw that there was just a need to kind of go beyond the the surface level reporting and deal with issues that Tyler, like a lot of cities in our country right now, um, is certainly experiencing, but there just wasn't a lot of great investigative reporting and surfacing of fresh new perspectives. Um, So I wanted to take my experience in national media and do something totally different, take a big turn in my career and get digging into local community in-depth journalism in a place that was really more used to daily news, but not a lot of in-depth journalism. So is there a daily currently in Tyler? There is, yes. Tyler is lucky to have a daily newspaper. A lot of communities our size don't have one anymore. So we have the Tyler Morning Telegraph. And as I always say, you know, it's great that we have local reporters out here that are able to dig into the who, what, and when, and where. And we're hoping to, you know, complement their great reporting by digging more into the how and the why. Okay. So, um, I wonder how difficult uh, it's been to start a project like this, because you do have, I mean, at least some degree of competition. Uh, Who all's involved? So it started with me and my husband. Um, My husband and I are both journalists, and we were working in national media at the time. We moved to Tyler for family reasons and decided, you know, let's let's keep our national media jobs. Um, But... Let's also just kind of scratch our itch to return to our our roots. Um, We both started our careers in local journalism Mm -hmm. and start this project just kind of on the side and see if anybody in the community is interested in some deeper reporting on issues like, you know, immigration, segregation, income inequality, and so on here in our community. And it was like we lit a match. I mean, I cannot begin to tell you the response that we got from people here in Tyler saying, oh, my goodness, you're doing this in-depth stuff. Please keep going. So about um, a year into this project, I decided to make it my full-time job. And hmm. so here I am running a startup local journalism nonprofit out of East Texas. I mean, as someone who is basically a journalism entrepreneur, which is what it sounds like uh, you and your husband are, I wonder, I mean, well, how's business? I mean, do you think that you can support reporters and yourself and, and, and you know, your family on what you will make as a uh, pioneering journalist in, in, in Tyler? Um, You know, this thing is an experiment, and it's kind of a challenge both to us and to the community to say, if we all value this kind of work in, you know, here in Tyler, here in East Texas, what is it going to take to sustain it? So, you know, I have a projection, um, you know, I've done the math and I said, you know, for our family, we can keep running this project, I would say for about another year where we try to really up our skills as fundraisers, you know, get our 501c3 settled, mm-hmm. uh, keep working that membership program. But, you know, in all of the newsrooms that I worked at before starting my own here in Tyler, I really learned that it's all about diversified revenue streams. And if you can crack that code as a publisher, the barrier to entry, if you start as a digital publication, is just, I mean, orders of magnitude easier and less costly than if we were starting a print publication. 
education. So right, right. how do you kind of balance out the the sort of, you know, cost advantages of being an online startup like mine with the realities of, okay, but you still need reporters, you know, eventually you're still going to really need to be able to sustain this thing. So I'm hoping that I can put that challenge to Tyler and say, hey, if you value what we're doing, um, please help us, you know, help us stay in this community. Um, I have to ask you about some of your recent stories. What, what have you mm -hmm. been covering? So recently, we did a, a huge feature on a really fascinating um, crowdfunding campaign that happened here in Tyler, where the local LGBTQ community raised thousands of dollars to help a local um, young woman, a transgender woman, get her driver's license updated with her name and gender markers after she transitioned. This is not the kind of story that people are used to really kind of reading about here in Tyler. Um, you know, the LGBTQ community doesn't have huge visibility here, but it is here. So we followed how this crowdfunding campaign worked and what it meant for, you know, the woman who was at the center of it, how it changed her life to get this done. So we worked on that. I'll also tell you about one of our most popular um, projects, which is not really a story. It was more of an experiment. Um, we called it the Tyler Loop Taco Tour. And I'll tell you that Tyler is very racially segregated, more so than anywhere I've ever lived. And we decided we wanted to give people a way of crossing borders in this city where borders are very geographically and racially defined in people's minds and in reality. And we said, you know what, come with us as we just check out different taquerias around town. If you want to come be a part of this project, just shoot us an email. I thought like maybe, you know, five or 10 people were going to email me and say, okay, I don't really know what this weird project is, but I guess I'll get involved. Over a hundred people emailed me and they knew what this was about. They knew, yeah, it was about eating delicious tacos, but it's really something more than that. It's really about, you know, just engaging with the segregation in our community and kind of finding new ways of, of just meeting each other as neighbors here in Tyler. Hit us with a web address. It's the tylerloop.com. That's easy enough. <laughs> Tasneem Raja is the executive editor of The Tyler Loop. Congratulations on uh, your auspicious beginnings. Uh, sounds terrific, and uh, look forward to following you online. Thank you so much. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. The parents of a Pakistani exchange student killed during the school shooting in Santa Fe, Texas, have joined a lawsuit against the suspected shooter's parents. Houston Public Media's Laurie Johnson reports. 17-year-old Sabika Sheik was one of 10 people killed in the shooting at Santa Fe High School on May 18th. Now her parents have joined a lawsuit previously filed by some of the victim's family members. The suit alleges the 17-year-old suspect's parents, quote, negligently and irresponsibly stored their firearms so their son could access them. It also claims they failed to respond to warning signs their son might be a danger to others. An attorney for the suspect's parents denies any liability on their part and says they can't be held accountable for crimes committed by someone else. Sabika was in the United States as part of a State Department-sponsored exchange program. In Houston, I'm Laurie Johnson. 
The Texas General Land Office is a program that provides trailers to people who lost their homes in Hurricane Harvey is getting an extension. Nearly 1,600 households are still in temporary housing units. Land Commissioner George P. Bush asked the Federal Emergency Management Agency to provide the temporary housing for another six months. The FEMA program was originally set to expire in February because that will mark 18 months since the disaster. Bush also asked for a rent waiver. GLO spokesperson Brittany X says that request was denied. And the rent is considered minimal. It will be based on fair market value with consideration for the individual's uh, income level. The temporary housing units will now be available through August 25th of 2019. In some areas, people will have the chance to purchase their FEMA trailer. Today, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department begins stocking the state's ponds, lakes, and rivers with rainbow trout. More than 170 locations will soon be brimming with the fish. Aubrey Buzek is a spokesperson for the state agency. Rainbow trout uh, typically do better in cool weather, so this has become a winter tradition. Once the temperatures start to drop, uh, we start looking at a putting rainbow trout in for kind of a winter fishing option for families and anglers. She adds it's rare for trout to reproduce in Texas, so they're brought in from out of state. So most of our hatchery trout, uh, they, they actually come from Missouri. They take a pretty long trip down to Texas. Texas Parks and Wildlife will be stocking more than 320,000 rainbow trout at all locations through March. And Busick says this is an especially popular season for fishing. Definitely, if you want some tips, uh, some insider tips, get there early. Uh, if you want to keep any of the rainbow trout, you're going to want to have some ice with you. Children under 17 can fish for free, but adults are required to have a fishing license. But if you're casting your line in Texas state parks, no license is required. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Ma Bell's getting in the movie business? After the closing bell on Wall Street yesterday, Dallas-based AT&T announces its next move will take on Netflix. We'd heard such a plan was in the works, but now a much better sense of what's on the drawing board. A three-tiered service of entertainment streaming heavy on original movies and TV series from Warner Brothers, HBO, and Turner. Market Watch, among the many reporting the service, will start in 2019. This is part of the upshot to the company's planned takeover of Time Warner which has been about two years in the making as AT&T's tried to fend off the Trump administration's opposition to the $81 billion deal. The big idea here to grow AT&T so it can compete with upstarts like Disney Plus, their planned screaming streaming service. No price structure yet for the AT&T movie channels nor any official name. Just one of many stories we continue to watch here at The Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver e-commerce and digital solutions designed to elevate customer engagement and revenue for mid-market companies. More at softwareispromised.com. In the early 1900s, a tragic event took place on the West Texas borderlands. Today, the Porvenir Massacre is being memorialized by the Texas Historical Commission with a marker ceremony in Marfa. A process has been wrought with controversy. For the descendants of the Porvenir victims, coming to terms with this history is a process that's taken over 100 years. Marfa Public Radio's Diana Nguyen takes us back to the Porvenir Massacre. The year is 1918. The Mexican Revolution is underway, and racial and political tensions along the U.S.-Mexico border are heightened. Near Candelaria, a small village called Porvenir is home to about 140 people. It's here on January 28th, 15 innocent boys and men are executed at the hands of Texas Rangers, U.S. military, and Big Bend area ranchers. It's not a secret anymore. We're out there to tell this story. 
Arlinda Valencia lives in El Paso. She's a descendant of Longino Flores, one of the men who was killed that day. She shares this ancestor with other relatives, who you'll hear from later. One of the things that's really helping is having other people learn about it. Like lots of other kids in Texas, she didn't know about the Porvenir massacre growing up. It's not commonly taught in schools. Valencia found out as an adult and had a hard time believing it was true. But she started to track her genealogy, and she found documentation of her great-grandfather's murder. To understand that it was the people that were supposed to be protecting our family are the ones that they had to flee from because they were, they were murderers. That was the hardest thing to deal with. The Porvenir Massacre isn't an isolated event. During the Mexican Revolution, Texas Rangers and other vigilantes murdered scores of Mexican-Americans. Nationally, there's very little, few people who know about this period of state-sanctioned violence. Monica Munoz-Martinez is a historian who studies racial violence along the U.S.-Mexico border. She applied for the Porvenir marker with the Texas Historical Commission. None of the rangers involved in the massacre were ever indicted, and Martina says she can't let people forget what happened. When state police officers take into custody men and boys and execute them and deny them due process, we should be able to say 100 years later that that's a tragedy. I feel pretty bad for him because he never forgot what he saw, what happened. 85-year-old Paula Flores-Smith lives in Arlington. She's also related to Arlinda Valencia's great-grandfather. And they share another relative, Paula's father, Juan Flores. Juan was a child when the massacre happened and was almost killed alongside his father. But his life was spared. He was too young. When he went to see what he had done to his father, and you see him, that he was just in pieces, I mean, how could you forget that? For the rest of Juan's life, he struggled with symptoms of PTSD. It's been over 100 years, and descendants are still trying to make sense of this day. Some believe the massacre was a racist ploy to make Anglo residents of the border feel safe. I don't think we're going to truly know the truth 100%. Amanda Shields lives in West Palm Beach and is the descendant of another victim. Nobody back then is alive today. And so no one can truly say 100% why that it happened. She grew up knowing the story of Port Rainier, but her father, Jesus Morales, had to dig for information. His family didn't talk about it. I started reading some articles in different books and different magazines here and there about these 15 people that got massacred in this town. He's in his 80s, and he's still searching for answers. I want to find out exactly why, why they were massacred. There are proven details surrounding the Porvenir Massacre. On January 28, 1918, 15 boys and men were killed at the hands of authorities. But even with the Texas Historical Commission's marker, there are still questions left unanswered for Morales. Why Porvenir? Why his relatives? Who exactly pulled the trigger? After all this time, he's still hoping to find the truth. For the Texas Standard, I'm Diana Wynn in Marfa. Where 15 men stood by each other in fear. The Texas Rangers all pointed their guns. There was no place to hide. 
Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. It's Texas Standard. With tomorrow World AIDS Day, San Antonio is marking the one-year anniversary of a program to get people tested, diagnosed, and treated so they can get on with the rest of their lives. Texas Public Radio's Bonnie Petrie has more. Jacob Castrojano is HIV positive. He was diagnosed well over a decade ago, but for a long time, he hid his diagnosis. Because I was just scared of people's reaction. And he didn't get any kind of treatment. Then he met the woman who would become his wife. She got him into treatment, and now his viral load is undetectable, and his doctor is more worried about his cholesterol than HIV. San Antonio Metro Health Director Dr. Colleen Bridger says getting more people diagnosed and treated is among the goals of the city's now year-old program, Fast Track Cities. Which is an international initiative to address what's going on with HIV and tackle it openly, transparently, and with data. The accomplishments achieved by the program over the last year include cutting the length of time it takes for someone who tests positive to get into treatment by nearly half. It has also increased the number of people tested through the city's mobile unit from 4,000 in a year to 4,000 in a month. But Bridger says she has more ambitious goals for next year at this time. I'd love to be able to stand up at the podium and say 90% of HIV positive people know their status. 90% of people diagnosed with HIV have been connected to medical resources and have started treatment. And 90% of people on treatment have reduced their viral load to zero. She would also like to see the stigma around those testing positive for HIV to disappear and the shame. Jacob Castrojano says that's why he's now speaking publicly about his status. The shame is what actually is the bigger problem because people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to go get tested. And so that is what inevitably leads to the more spreading of HIV. By the way, Castrojano and his wife, who are both HIV positive, are the parents of three healthy children who are all HIV negative. Reporting for the Texas Standard, I'm Bonnie Petrie. Nearly all plastic objects, I am told, are made from small pellets called nurdles. These are beads said to be the building blocks of a lot of the stuff we use on a day-to-day basis. But even though these nurdles are rather tiny, they can cause big problems for the environment. That's the focus of a new report from the Corpus Christi Caller Times written by David Sykes. He's the outdoors columnist for the Caller Times. David, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. I don't think I've ever seen a nurdle, or maybe I have, and I didn't know it was a nurdle. Where do these nurdles come from? <laughs> well, that's that's the that's the million dollar question. Um, I, you know, a lot of places along around the Gulf of Mexico make these things. In fact, they there's a, a new plant proposed uh, just across the bay from Corpus Christi that's going to make them um, if they can get past all the protests. You know. <laughs> I think that you almost have to look to the nearest source on this one. Uh, and uh, a, a nonprofit up there uh, around the Point Comfort area uh, seems to think that they're coming from the Point Comfort Formosa plant. 
but I don't say that in my report, and, and, and neither does Jace Tunnel with the Mission Aransas National Estuarine uh, Research Reserve at the uh, Marine Science Institute in Port Aransas. He, he just knows that he's starting to see more and more of them on Mustang and Padre Islands, and uh, it's become quite a citizen scientist uh, um, effort. How many are washing up on Texas shores? I mean, they, if you're if they're tiny, how big are they? Bigger than uh... about as big as a caper. <laughs> oh, okay, well, that's pretty vivid. Yeah, I get that. So, and and do they have a sense of just how, you know in terms of volume? How do you measure something the well, size of a caper? You know, I tried I tried to get the 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 uh, nonprofit up there and, and point comfort to tell me. I said, is it enough to fill a beanbag chair, or, or is it enough? to fill a dump truck and and she never could give me a, a sense of volume but uh when you look at some of the photographs you see obviously in a single photo frame thousands of them hmm. in the marshes up there um in some areas and most of the time what they do is they show you a, a, a quart-sized ziploc bag you know bulging with them uh, that they found and i don't know how long it took them to find those down here, they're a little more scattered. When you get this far south, I mean, obviously they can kind of be carried by the tides, and and then they get covered by sand, and you know. But um, I mean, you can find a hundred and fifty of them in a little fifty centimeter square. Wow, which is what they use down here to to, to, to look for them. So where so how are the nurdles causing uh, uh, causing damage or danger to the environment? Well, there's several ways. Uh, uh, turtles eat them. Uh, I guess they think they're maybe, I don't know, fish eggs or something. I don't know. Uh, 9% of the turtles that were necropsy, you know, uh, over the, a period of time, I don't know how many years, right. uh, had at least uh, one nurdle in their, in their stomachs. Uh, you know, fish eat them, and there's a danger there. Because sooner or later, these, these uh, nurdles, the toxins in them break down, I guess. And, of course, we eat fish, so, you know, that might be a, an issue. Um, I mean, golly, I, I, the, the wildlife, birds eat them because they think they're, I don't know, eggs or food or seeds or whatever. Um, it's really hard to grasp just how, how, how much, how far and extensive the uh, environmental problem is, but I mean, plastic is just pollution. It just adds to it. Well, is there anything regular folks can do, or is there anything that authorities are trying to do? Well, there's a lawsuit. Uh, we'll, we'll probably get that question answered about the source of the nurdles uh, in, in, in February or soon thereafter. Um, the, the, the lawsuit is, uh, is filed against Formosa. Uh, millions of dollars uh, uh, is what they're asking for, but... But I think the main thing the lawsuit seeks is accountability. If if Formosa is indeed uh, the source, then you know, I mean, they need to clean it up. But on on, on another level, uh, I think the, we need to find out how many there are and how widespread the problem is. And, and that's where Jace Tunnel and his group over there at the Marine Science Institute uh, in in Port Aransas. Is, is trying to assign as many citizen scientists as he can along the Texas coast. Just go to the beach and look for them and, and, and tell them where they found them and how many they found. Uh, he just wants to collect as much data as he can so he can, you know, just see how widespread it is. 
David Sykes is the outdoor columnist for the Corpus Christi Caller Times. We'll have a link to his latest, so you can check this out for yourself at TexasStandard.org. David, thanks for talking with us, and uh, have a great weekend. My pleasure. You too. As we close what has been oxymoronically called Cyber Monday week, we turn our attention to a purported tradition designed to undercut a focus on the stuff under the tree. The Atlanta Journal and others reporting on the beloved tradition of the Vinatsgurka, translation the Christmas pickle. This tradition is said to involve hanging a green pickle on the family tree as an ornament hidden among the needles. Whoever finds the Vinatsgurka, the special morning, receives a special treat, attempt to slow down kids who only want to rip into their presents. The name suggests this is an old German tradition, though a recent poll found 91% of all Germans had never heard of it, which sort of undercuts the notion this is a tradition, or at least a German one, but the New York Times reports it is a thing in the Midwest where many German families immigrated in the 19th century. So if anyone in Fredericksburg or New Braunfels would care to confirm or deny, you know where to reach us, our social media editor. Back in a moment. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be a force for the greater good, like Professor Liren Ma, who is developing a program to make an iPhone operate as an inexpensive hearing aid. TCU, lead on. I am Jody Edgerton, and I'm with the Typewriter Rodeo. And we are a group that crafts custom poems on vintage typewriters. You give us a word, an idea, a phrase, something you'd like a poem about, and we will write you a poem on the spot. Still sneezing. I sniffled my way through oak and elm and snorted through ragweed in June, a day and a half of relief in July, till mold became my doom. My eyeballs are covered in angry streaks. My nose is tickly and raw. I almost started to see the light till the cat nuzzled up against my jaw. Oh, Texas, I love you, but your foliage has taken to my sinuses like a cleaver. And although I'll breathe easily once we get a cold snap, it's just a sweet break till my Texas sweetheart, Cedar Fever. I'm Jody Edgerton, and you're on Texas Standard Time. Support for the Typewriter Radio comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. You can catch the Typewriter Radio each and every Friday here on The Standard and anytime on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. We want to hear from you on this, too. Send us... Your typewriter rodeo poetry requests by way of social media or just email us, texasstandard at kut.org. As we say goodbye to November and the week that was, we'd be amiss if we didn't spend a few minutes talking about what was making news this week. Joining us now, Sylvia Gonzalez-Gorman. She is assistant professor of political science at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, Edinburgh campus. Professor Gonzalez-Gorman, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us here on the Texas Standard. Thank you for having me. I Tornillo back in the news. Uh, that's the one-time emergency camp set up during the, uh, uh, I guess it happened, this happened during the family separation crisis. Uh, and, and as I understand it, this was where minors uh, were being sent, but this was not set up to house kids who had actually been separated from their families. Is that right? 
That is correct. It was set up as a temporary shelter, and it did not include a family separation. Children. Okay, so now now we're hearing that the numbers there are growing. What's going on? Well, we've got a lot of influx coming in, as I mentioned. You know, as I'll mention, 360 in June, we're up to 2,300 as of November, and we should see those numbers swell with the migrant caravans coming in, but children are moved from other facilities to the Torneo facility. But there's also a story that, uh, of course, since you have to have people overseeing these young people, that employees are being uh, admitted at the Torneo camp without the proper FBI background checks. What's, What's the backstory there? Correct. Um, the Torneo camp is being run by a private organization, and ORR, the Office for Refugee and Resettlement, uh, granted them extension to not have to go through all of those loopholes. So they have not been conducting those fingerprint checks or the child neglect and abuse checks. Is it clear whether that's legal? The ORR director has a right to waive those, but uh, the stipulation is one of the two must be met and none of the two are being met. Two Texans, we are hearing, might be running for president. And uh, this coming just on the heels of the midterms, it's hard to believe we're already talking about 2020. Let's begin with uh, Julian Castro, one-time mayor of San Antonio, former uh, HUD secretary under President Obama. He might be running for president, we hear. Yeah, he's actually said that he will make a decision whether he's going to run by the end of the year. He said sometime in December. Uh, So we'll just have to wait and see if he actually makes that decision. I'm pretty inclined to think that he will. I'm wondering, though, whether he might have some second thoughts, given uh, what he sees in the rearview mirror, a fellow Democrat? That's correct. Beto O'Rourke, uh, the three-time congressman from El Paso, has also indicated that he has some aspirations of possibly seeking the nomination. Interesting, though, because he had previously said he wouldn't run for the nation's highest office. That's correct. Uh, he's young, though. He's 46, as is Castro. But uh, the big thing about Beto is that he barely lost the election to Ted Cruz, the Republican, by 200,000 votes out of 8 million here in Texas. That puts a little wind in itself. I guess it does, but he's going to have to have some kind of platform. He's not going to be congressman after January. Correct. He's going to have to keep his profile high. He's going to have to be out on the media. He's going to have to find a cause. Uh, He's going to have to get some support. Um, But I think there's enough political backers that will be willing to rise to that challenge for him. Watch this space. Sylvia Gonzalez-Gorman certainly is. She's assistant professor of political science at the University of Texas, RGV. Professor Gonzalez-Gorman, thanks so much, and I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you so much for having me. You are listening to the Texas Standard. Hello there, Wells Dunbar. Hi there, David Brown. Wells Dunbar is our social media editor here at The Standard. And what are Texans talking about on this last day of the work week? Well, here's the simmering story out of Tarrant County that appears to be coming to a boil. A group within the Tarrant County Republican Party has been calling for the ouster of its vice chair due to nothing more than the fact that he is a Muslim. Uh, The same group, David, is also calling for a precinct chairwoman who supports him to be kicked out along with another female precinct chair who was married to a Muslim. So Hmm. this story's been picking up steam. Papers from the Texas Observer to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram have been reporting on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today, Land Commissioner George P. Bush uh, sounded off on the situation via Twitter. He writes, I urge the Tarrant County GOP to stop this attempt 
To remove a hardworking county party official based on religious beliefs, we must move toward a more inclusive Republican Party and start stop tearing down our own if we are to keep Texas red. Who is that this saying? That, that was from uh, George P. Bush, land uh, commissioner right. there. And another interesting uh, bit of context to that statement, David, uh, th- found this from Texas Tribune reporter uh, Patrick Svitek. He tweets that Bush is the first statewide official to weigh in on this controversy that he's aware of. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, more officials follow his lead there indeed we will see you know speaking of uh uh, political officials from texas it's friday so i guess i can wade into this but you heard about uh this uh ted cruz nine inch nails thing uh didn't he want to go see nine inch nails i hear he's a fan well yeah so here's what happened so on a recent swing through texas uh trent reznor nine inch nails frontman uh he said that ted cruz hit him up for a guest list uh, for free tickets to the concert. Hmm. And he, in no uncertain terms, told him that wasn't going to happen using some profane language. Also, sent something to the fact of, uh, you know, last time he came through Texas, he got in and drank all of his beer and party too hard backstage. Oh, so I think, seriously? I think he was funning a little bit. Uh-huh, and right. that's what uh, right. Ted Cruz was uh, tweeting about. He uh, uh-huh. tweeted, to all the gullible reporters who are reporting that I asked to be on the guest list at a Nine Inch Nails concert, uh, no. Nine Inch Nails is not my music taste. He was clearly joking. And for the record, I also didn't drink all his beer last time, but I would have. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Ted. Yeah. Wasn't there one. a Saturday Night Live sketch that sort of riffed on this <laughs> general remember. proposition? Well, you know, I was joking myself on Twitter. You know, he says that's not his music taste, so it must be something a lot harder. You know, it must be yeah. like some extreme underground black metal or you know, something like I guess, that. I guess we haven't, I didn't ask, but I guess we haven't heard from anybody in New Braunfels or Fredericksburg about the Christmas pickle. Mm. No, you know? no, not yet. Not right. yet. We'll, well see. We still have an open door for those of you who know anything <laughs> about the aforementioned Christmas pickle. If you happen to be uh, listening a little earlier in the broadcast, we're out of time, uh, at least for now. But we're going to be back here on Monday. We sure do hope you can join us on behalf of the entire Texas Standard Crew, including Mr. Dunbar here. I'm David Brown, wishing you a wonderful weekend. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation. Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit TexasPublicMediaNetwork.com. Public Radio International.